Hey, it's Jordan Sheridan here with Beat the Press. We're doing a little video podcast here. I'm like, this is like my third podcast ever, so uh, roll with me uh, with the tech stuff. Uh, I got a microphone in front of me. I don't know if you could see it. And since this is the early days uh, of this media revolution, I don't have a soundproof studio. So you might hear a couple of sirens and ambulances in New York City, but uh, hopefully you could hear. Uh, I'm here with Anthony Clark. Uh, you were a candidate. Uh, for the 7th District uh, in Illinois, uh, the Democratic primary, I believe, was last week. Uh, unfortunately, you were not victorious, but uh, I think actually, uh, in many ways, there were some positive things that came from your campaign. Uh, you were facing Danny Davis. He's a congressman. He's been in office for 20 years. Um, just talk about, uh, sorry to rub it in, but just so the audience has it, the, uh, the results was 73 to 26. So, uh, hey, Bernie lost a few, a few times uh, first. So let me let me ask you before we get into the loss, remind people who don't know you were a Justice Democrat candidate, uh, you're, you're a U.S. military uh, veteran, you're a special education teacher. Uh, talk to me about just what the what your experience was. I know you might feel differently in a few weeks with more perspective, but even though you didn't, you didn't weren't victorious. What was your experience like in this kind of progressive uprising running against the establishment? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, appreciate you having me on. Uh, no, definitely. Uh, you know, love your work. Glad to see you back and uh, doing our thing. So for me, uh, like you stated, you know, I'm a military veteran. Uh, so I was born and raised essentially in the seventh congressional district. So the seventh district is what I've known. Uh, essentially all my life, since the age of five years old. Uh, graduated high school, went into the military, started six years active duty. Uh, when I exited the military due to a disability, I have PTSD and also what's known as uh, Bichette's disease. It's in the family of like Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoidosis. Uh, so I was medically discharged honorably. Uh, went through the Troops of Teachers program, became a special education teacher. Uh, so I've been teaching special ed for nine years, all within the 7th Congressional District. Uh, from there, I formed my own nonprofit. So I'm the founder and director of my own nonprofit, Suburban Unity Alliance. Uh, I'm also a co-owner of a small business that employs at-risk youth within the 7th. So essentially my entire life, you know, uh, everything that I've done in my life outside of military service has been focused and entrenched in the 7th Congressional District. Uh, so I know the 7th, like the 7th, you know, I bleed the 7th, I fight for the 7th. Uh, so essentially from the work that I've done, you know, as a teacher, you know, I believe that you work outside of nine to five. You don't clock in and clock out of being a teacher. So, you know, building relationships with students and families, uh, you know, working within the community, being an activist, a community organizer uh, from there, expanding it into starting my nonprofit, Suburban Unity Alliance, where uh, we focus on, you know, bridging equity gaps, fighting for equality. Uh, you know, we've done everything from, you know, help push uh, the most progressive welcoming village ordinance of the nation in Oak Park, Illinois. Uh, to, you know, hosting free financial literacy courses at, at local institutions for youth and family, uh, to paying for, you know, scholarships, groceries, rent, uh, so on and so forth, being trained on filling out DACA renewals, uh, helping dreamers uh, complete their DACA renewal applications. So we've done, I mean, literally everything, because I feel like the issues that we face are interconnected, uh, so they require interconnected solutions. And I've always been the type of person, man, that just feels like, I'm never doing enough. You know, my grandpa Chun, God rest his soul, you know, he was a huge Ali fan. He used to say, you know, service to others is the rent you pay for room here on the service. So how are you paying rent? You know, Tony, Tony V, that's what he used to call me. So that's always in my mind. Like, how am I paying rent? Uh, so being a teacher wasn't enough. So I formed a nonprofit. Uh, doing that work wasn't enough. So, you know, uh, I created a small business, co-owner of a small business. And it just, it's, it seemed like it happened when it was supposed to, like it was a, almost a calling in a sense. It is a calling where I was thinking in my head, I'm not paying enough rent, you know, because the stuff that I'm doing right now to me is essentially, you know, treating symptoms, you know, like putting a Band-Aid over an open wound. I'm not changing anything systemically. So what more can I do? And I got an email, you know, around that time period from Justice Democrats and brand new Congress stating that, you know, multiple individuals in the community had nominated me to run for office. Uh, at first I was like, hell no, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not the political type, uh, but, you know, long story short, you know, I accepted the nomination uh, and we were boots to the ground, you know, 100 percent grassroots, uh, you know, individual donations, 
uh, just continuing, uh, essentially expanding the work I was already doing, you know, as, as running a nonprofit, a small business and teaching. So it was a great experience, you know. Um, you know, we got to this point where we did lose. Uh, but, you know, as my students say, I took an L or we took an L. But uh, I look at taking this L as a win, honestly, uh, because if you look at Illinois, I mean, we have high corruption in Illinois. You know, the machine is entrenched. You can holler at it and thank Mike Madigan for that. Uh, so just getting my feet wet, you know, and just learning, seeing the intricacies of politics, uh, you know, seeing the ins and outs and what we should have done better, you know, what we can improve on, what we can eliminate and don't have to focus on and worry about. Like, I'm already ready for two years, bro. You know, I mean, if you look at Mary Newman, Mary Newman, uh, you know, she was another Justice Democrat. You know, she ran up against Lipinski, Samina Mustafa. She ran up against Quigley, uh, David Gill. We have so many progressives running in Illinois. Uh, I mean, even, you know, I was supporting essentially Daniel Biss uh, for governor, you know, but, you know, progressives took an L. But I think as a whole, it's a win uh, because I think we're, we're, we've, we've sent notice and, uh, you know, we're going to move forward, man. We got to change all the noise. And uh, before I get to my next question, I just want to point out uh, I was actually in special ed from first to third grade. So uh, a lot of kudos to you because that is a really, really tough job. And uh really, really underappreciated, I think, special education teachers. So uh, kudos to you for that. Um, no, you as well. You as well. So I want to I ask, you know, you, you briefly mentioned it. I've been around the country to, at this point, uh, 32 states uh, the last two years. Illinois is a whole nother planet in terms of corruption, and uh, specifically the Chicago area. And I think what a lot of people don't know the focus on Bernie and national politics is on the state level. A lot of these states, I mean, the entrenchment of the Democratic Party establishment is widespread. Can you kind of talk about uh, what your experience was? Obviously, you didn't have the name recognition of a congressman who's older, was representing that district for 20 years. Um, but I saw I saw your tweets. I saw your pictures. I mean, you were out there more than anyone else in terms of, uh, you know, demonstrating peacefully and grassroots organizing and all this, what were you facing? Uh, you know, maybe some of it you don't want to talk about, some of it you can. What were you facing? Because we saw, uh, you know, uh, basically deceptive mailers being sent out by party bosses there uh, in, in Illinois. And uh, there's a lot we didn't see. What kind of stuff were you facing? Because I think a yeah. lot of candidates are facing this around the country. Right, right, definitely. And I mean, you know, you know, and again, you know, I believe in being transparent and as open as possible. And one of the things we did throughout the campaign was expose a lot of the things we were facing, you know, because we wanted to educate the public and the community. Uh, because what's interesting to me, you know, again, I'm not a negative person. I didn't run a negative campaign. Uh, you know, I didn't do any attack acts, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I ran on who we were, you know, the movement. Uh, but it's interesting how incumbents on the surface present themselves, you know, as stately. Uh, you know, as individuals that support the democratic process, are in love with democracy, and you know, are open to any and everyone running for office because that's what a true republic is. That's what a true democracy is. But you know, what some so many of the public don't understand, and I mean, it's, I get it because we're focused on life. We have bills to pay, jobs, children to raise. Not everybody has the time to truly dig deep and see, you know, lift that veil and see what's going on behind the scenes. But almost immediately, it was interesting when I announced my candidacy. And like you stated, we do this like we're out in these streets, like we're grinding, like this is nothing new. I care about the community. I'm not running for power. I didn't run, you know, to get a name out there to run for the hell of it to say, oh, I could be at a bar one night and be like, hey, I ran for office like this was real. You know, like I ran because I care about changing this community. And so many areas in Illinois are just under devastation currently. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, I think it's interesting how, you know, many of the incumbents, particularly in Illinois, uh, in regards to when they're facing a challenger, uh, they present themselves as stately. They present themselves as supporting the democratic process, as believing in a democratic republic. Uh, you know, perfect example, when I announced my candidacy, you know, newspapers approached the incumbent, Danny K. Davis, and he stated, oh, he welcomes the challenge. He's excited for it. But almost immediately after my, my myself announcing you know, the underhanded backroom tactics started, you know, from intimidating phone calls. Uh, I mean, the incumbent himself called me and stated, you know, I was going to embarrass myself. I'm not even going to make the ballot. Uh, you know, I need to drop out and, you know, really think about what I'm doing. And do I have a lawyer? Will I be able to afford a lawyer? Uh, because what happened was, you know, 
we have to collect signatures. You know, we're in Illinois, you have to collect signatures to get on the ballot. Uh, so don't quote me, but I believe we have to collect roughly 1,356. So I turned in, you know, almost 3,000. I mean, this was like, I'm still working full time, mind you. I work at the school full time, still run my nonprofit. But, you know, off of work, weekends, you know, we have wonderful volunteers out there, boots to the ground. So we collected all these signatures. Like, we did this the right way. Uh, but what happens is, you know, we turned in our petitions. They challenged them. You know, so to a grassroots candidate like me, who $1,000 means everything, it cost me $10,000 uh, to hire a lawyer. Uh, shout out to Ed Mullen in Chicago. Wonderful lawyer, supports a lot of progressive candidates. Uh, but that process lasted two months. Uh, so from the time we turned in our signatures, we had two months where we essentially weren't officially on the ballot. So you can imagine how that impacts your race in a sense, because, I mean, even newspapers, even the media, they're not necessarily going to approach you like you're an official candidate because they don't know if you're going to actually make the ballot. So a lot of people aren't even, you know, they don't even know if they can take you seriously yet. Uh, so he initially challenged my signatures. Uh, they put forward, I mean, just the general, you know, just motion. Just They threw out basically SHIT on the wall to see what would stick. Uh, it was garbage challenge. We defeated that. But then that wasn't enough. That took about a month to defeat. Then they filed a Rule 8 motion, uh, and they stated that myself and my mother, Blanche Clark, who, I, I mean, is my queen. She's the ultimate ride or die. Uh, Blanche does not play when it comes to her son. She was out there with me, but they challenged us stating that we were not the petition collectors. So we were not actually out there collecting signatures. So that was their next tactic to file a rule eight motion. Uh, so that took another month uh, of us not officially being on the ballot. Now, mind you, there was a third person that was running, a third person that announced their candidacy and turning in their petitions. They actually were knocked off the ballot uh, because they, not, they could not afford you know, a lawyer. They could not afford a proper defense. They tried to defend themselves. Uh, so we, we, we survived that. But again, that's two months of time that I have to spend with my lawyer, time that I have to spend uh, going up to the courthouse, going up to the Board of Elections uh, to try to figure out, you know, what we need to do to correctly and appropriately defend, uh, you know, our petitions. That's money spent that could have been used on advertising, that could have been used on so much more because, again, the incumbent himself stated, I'll never forget, we held a meeting in, in the Austin community and he crashed it. And he came in and was just like, literally told me to my face, I mean, other people were there, you're not going to win. And he didn't say I wasn't going to win because he was better. He didn't say I wasn't going to win because he had the answers to, you know, the, the issues that are facing our district. He literally stated, I've ha I have 20 years of name recognition and I have money. <laughs> you're not going to win. You know, so after we made the ballot, you know, I mean, now. Right, right. I mean, no, it was it, and it was serious. And I mean. You know, and it's even the nuance involved. So we make the ballot. But then along the way, we're pushing for debates, right? Like we want to we want to debate. We want to, you know, be face to face with the incumbent to show the public, to show the community, you know, who we believe is the better you know, representative of this district. But it was even interesting to see how many uh, like the Democratic organizations, you know, part of the machines, they essentially ignored us. Like, I would literally be messaging, like, you know, Democratic parties about Park and so on and so forth. Like, hey, you know, can you at least hold a form? <laughs> can you hold, you know, can you call something? Uh, because I'm challenging him. I actually, you know, I know I'm all over the place, but it's, I mean, literally everything. Like, I walked the entire district uh, from Inglewood to downtown Chicago all the way to essentially Maywood, right outside of Westchester. And along that walk, the next day, I went to the incumbent's office and provided him a letter challenging him to debates. Uh, you know, because it was it's important to me. So throughout this entire process, we only had two times where we we're in front of each other. The first time was because the committee, uh, the committee woman who called for the form is essentially they're part of the establishment. They work together. You know, so it was his people. He felt comfortable. So he came out. He did his thing. I mean, the article was written. I clearly was, you know, uh, the progressive choice. You know, I was talking of change. At this forum, he stated, I'm going to do the same thing I've been doing for 20 years. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, and from that, then we had another one. But the one we had after pressure and pressure, local indivisibles finally called for a gun forum, a gun debate uh, about the gun violence and answers to it. And, I mean, we filmed this. But it was literally two days <laughs> before the primary. You know what I'm saying? So not a lot of people saw it. But we were the clear candidate. I mean, it was clear. Everybody was responding like, wow. You know, 
of your, your candidate in the race to receive the Moms the Man Action Gun Sense distinction. You know, all the progressive you know organizations for the most part endorse me. Uh, but again, that that nuance. They were stealing our signs because of name recognition. We will put down yard signs. Yard signs are expensive as hell. We put these down in various communities when we will be door knocking. They literally would take up our signs every week. Like take them up, pull them up, uh, like rip them up. They even we had like a, a glorious one. I was so proud. Like my face was on it like this, and it was like Anthony Clark and had our messaging. Like they literally cut it and like ripped it off. Right, his campaign, his campaign, campaign. I mean, and it and it happened in other races as well to, you know, uh, progressive candidates going against incumbents, so on and so forth. But primarily in my campaign, it was his campaign doing it. And I'm the type of person where, you know, I'm I'm straightforward, you know. So I remember seeing them, and I saw one of his, you know, uh, assistants, and you know, shook their hand. I was like, man, you got to be real tired right now. And they're like, why? Wow. I mean, you're taking all our signs up, you know. And again, it was funny. You know, they didn't deny it. He was like, well, that's how it goes in Chicago. No, that's not how it's supposed to go. You know, I don't feel like that's how it's supposed to go into democracy. I didn't challenge you. I didn't challenge your petitions because I believe it should be the voice of the people, the, the selection of the people who chooses who represents them, not knocking people off before they get their message out. And I didn't take up any signs. Because again, running your platform, running your energy, running what you're trying to do for the district. Uh, so they essentially admitted it, you know, that they took my signs. The incumbent was like, well, I didn't do it, but he could have, like literally said that. And I'm just like, really? So we have to deal with that, you know. So basically a blackout, you know, it was a gubernatorial race going on, but the media, they didn't pay a lot of attention to a lot of the other races, you know, rightfully so. Mary Newman's race against Lipinski got a lot of media coverage, and rightfully so. Uh, but even if you look at that, you know, progressive candidate fighting, uh, you know, lost to an incumbent, Lipinski, who had that name recognition and a lot of underhanded tactics that were at hand. Uh, so we dealt with, you know, signature challenge. We dealt with the Rule 8 motion, challenging ourselves as petition collectors. And, you know, doubling back to that again, you know, I remember being in court and I mean, his representatives literally lying, like literally lying, stating that, oh, you know, we never saw Anthony Clark. And they will present affidavits. And this was all funny is about it, Jordan. They presented affidavits that were not, um, you know, that had the, um, the signature of the notary, but they were third person affidavits. So they would literally present. This person was there when we talked to an individual that signed Anthony Clark's petition. And this individual said Anthony Clark wasn't present, but they didn't actually have the individual sign. You know what I'm saying? The affidavit. They had a third person say, oh, I overheard this conversation. So, of course, this evidence was thrown out. But then they had people come in uh, as witnesses that were literally just making stuff up. Like, oh, it was literally one woman said. And again, you know, I'm, I love everyone. I love all sizes. You know, this is not about that. But she literally was like, well, a 350 pound man was out there collecting my signature. Like, like you know, so stuff like that. It was just weird. Um, so, yeah. So just the blackouts, you know, being shut, shut off by, I guess, the Democratic establishment not having opportunities to even get myself and the message out there to a lot of voters, uh, being challenged, trying to get knocked off the ballot, our signature, our signs being stolen, uh, you know, our advertisements being stolen, getting calls, getting messages of harassing natures, just telling us to, you know, jump out the race. So things of that, you know, just the cycle of it uh, and just them banking off of name recognition. You know what I find interesting here? You know, I, w I was on the trail covering Bernie. Obviously, we know what happened in 2016. That's where really people got woken to how rigged things are on a national level. And when we talk about rigged as far as 2016, we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the media calling Iowa when Bernie's not even, he's losing by like one-tenth of a point, you know, or right. two-thirds of polling stations being closed down in Rhode Island and Maricopa County closing, I think, 60 or 70 percent of them. And all the tactics that, that went on uh, in this rigged system, of course, the DNC uh, essentially working against Bernie Sanders. But what you're talking about is the more micro level rigging on a local level, which is how does someone, whether he's a young guy like you or even an older candidate, because there's a lot of women that are running now, maybe in their 30s, 40s. Um, it, it, it seems rigged for the incumbent and the establishment and you know, the, the police on the, on the force who would be overseeing these underhanded tactics like, you know, stealing your, uh, stealing your yard signs or straight up lying in court or 
I mean, those the the police on the beat seems to be in bed with the incumbent candidates. Yeah, no question. I mean, it, and again, it's so nuanced in the sense of like you even have. So I ran for committee men as well, committee person, and I ran with like a slate of endorsed committee persons, progressive. And I mean, you even had like Mike, Michael Madigan, you know, sending out mailers even on that side. So, you know, you had my congressional run where I was, you know, dealing with being, you know, having blackouts. Sorry, not, sorry to you cut know. you off, but I just want to explain to the audience because oh, sure. tell me, Mike Madigan, I know who he is. He's the party boss there. Very, frankly, corrupt. Can you tell the audience yeah. about Mike Madigan? Yeah, Mike Madigan. I mean, if you like old mafia movies, uh, you know, that's how I essentially describe him. And like, he's just the old school democratic mafioso you know he's a speaker of the house in illinois i mean he's been in office he's been in power for decades and decades and i mean he's entrenched basically i mean nothing happens uh essentially without his blessing like he's a king maker queen maker uh so on and so forth so he has a lot of influence and essentially i mean to sum it up to show how corrupt it is for listeners look up joe barrios so joe barrios was our cook county assessor extremely corrupt uh, in, a, in regards to how he was assessing property taxes. Property taxes are a huge issue in Illinois. So somehow, finally, he was exposed and everybody was like up in arms. So Fritz Craigie actually won. He beat Joseph Berrios. But you cannot tell me this is the first time anyone knew that, you know, he was under-assessing the value of, you know, wealthy individuals' homes and over-assessing the value of, you know, middle class and lower middle class. This is the first time anybody knew about it. But Michael Madigan is a property tax lawyer as well. So he makes his money off of property taxes. So, I mean, it, it, it's just it's just corruption. You know, it's just deep corruption. So, Michael Madigan sent out mailers essentially attacking uh, the progressive, you know, uh, central committee men and committee women, committee persons uh, that were running, you know, against incumbents. Because, again, if you're a committee person, you have some influence in the sense of, again, how the messages get out there. Uh, you know, who's being slated, uh, you know, forms, debates, so on and so forth. Like, basically bringing together uh, your Democratic Party and locally and abroad. Uh, so that was huge for them. So you have that. And then if you look at the Tribune and the Sun-Times, literally, I mean, they went with and endorsed all the incumbents. Like, come on. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's just a, a heavy infiltration of machine politics. I mean, J.B. Pritzker just bought the election. Uh, for yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you have to look at who owns them. I mean, it's there's so many different connections in a sense. So for young progressives, you know, I can't speak for other states, you know, other areas, uh, you know, because I'm supporting this progressive movement. I'm so proud of many of the JDs and brand new Congress candidates that have won their primaries in other states. I'm going to be supporting them. But in Illinois, like you stated earlier, I mean, it's like it's a different it really is a different animal. Uh, it's, it's hard to truly you know, capture it and, and truly understand the level of nuance that exists of how progressives are just at every step, at every turn, the decks are stacked against us in a sense. But there's no excuse. You know, we're going to continue on. When I lost, I put on some Tupac, listened to some Machiavelli, got my head right. And, uh, you know, we're going to be back. And I hope, you know, Mary and so many others are back as well. So I want to ask you, uh, obviously, uh, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It was definitely rigged. The deck was stacked against you. I'm glad to hear that, you know, a lot of candidates, when they lose, they, you know, it takes it takes a little while for most people. You, you take your lumps, you're depressed or frustrated or angry, and you seem to be already, you know, very positive, focused on what you could do now, as well as maybe even running. But moving away from the election, you know, in the media, we hear a lot about the Rust Belt as far as Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania don't hear that much about Illinois only because it's a reliably on the national level Democrat, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Democrats win on the national level, especially for president. But, you know, I was astounded. I, I did this like disappearing middle class tour when I was in uh, when I was still at 2IT. We went Pennsylvania to uh, Ohio, to Michigan, to Illinois, to Wisconsin in very few days. And Illinois, I think, like Ohio, like Michigan, is a real microcosm for everything that's wrong with this country. Uh, you know, obviously we're not going to be looking for the current president to, to help fix it. But can you kind of talk about uh, how Illinois, not just Chicago, but greater Illinois has been just economically devastated by right. from the from the trade deals, rezoning. Talk about, you know, what inspired you to run in the first place and what what issues are still facing Illinois? So for those who don't know, you can look it up. Does that exist? 
Illinois actually led the nation in individuals moving out of the state this past year. I mean, people are leaving in droves. Uh, Illinois has a flat state tax, you know, flat tax system, uh, which is inequitable. I mean, which is creating a lot of huge issues. You know, the state of Illinois, again, we didn't have a spending budget for uh, X number of years. Uh, our public school systems are underfunded. Uh, many of them are closing, particularly in the Chicago land area, because, of course, uh, you know, as most of us realize, property taxes fund our school systems, which is inequitable as well. Um, you know, Rahm Emanuel, our current mayor, uh, sorry about that, I have to make a face when I say his name, uh, but, you know, he's he's led the push for privatization of our educational systems, uh, you know, whether that's charter schooling, uh, whether that's privatizing industries that serve our schools in regards to food services, janitorial services, that's creating a lot of huge issues because money is being siphoned away from our public schools uh, in regards to pushing for school choice. Uh, I mean, there's so many different things to talk about in Illinois. I mean, right now, you know, I just attended a, a, a nurses union rally, a National Nurses United Union rally in regards to, uh, I believe it's called Fair Choice. Uh, so Supreme Court case that's going on in regards to essentially union busting. Uh, first choice, you know, it's in regards to union busting where you can opt out of paying your union dues. Because, again, they're attacking the individual and they want to convince the individual that you will save a few money here and there. But then, as again, the power of our unions, they're being eroded, is being eroded, the power to collect a bargain. So there's so many issues within Illinois, from property taxes to our school systems uh, to a lack of budget. We did pass a budget, but still imagine years and years we're going with many of our services not being paid or being underfunded. That creates huge issues. Uh, so, again, many people are moving out of the state. The primary reason why I ran, you know, the 7th Congressional District is huge. I think we know the issue with gerrymandering. Uh, you can literally cross a street and everything changes within the 7th Congressional District. You can go from utter devastation to relative opportunity. But what happens is I truly believe that the health of one community directly impacts the health of other communities. So you have the communities within the 7th, like the Austin community, like Inglewood, like Back of the Yards, where you have so many different people fighting and loving their community, fighting for it on a grassroots level. But because of a choke off of funding, because of a lack of funding, they're in utter devastation. And it's inevitable if one community is in utter devastation, it's going to bleed over and impact all communities within that district. And that's what you have now. And within the 7th, you have communities like Oak Park, which is, you know, upper middle class, middle class, uh, you know, high property taxes, uh, which, again, is forcing some people out. But now the issues that occur in Austin, which is right next to Oak Park, now it's impacting Oak Park as well because we haven't had those bridges built. We haven't had investment in all of our communities to support our communities. So I ran due to that, due to the lack of investment in so many of our communities, uh, due to school closures, due to mental health facility closures, uh, due to lack of opportunity overall. Gun violence, I mean, is running rampant. I mean, the current president constantly has named Chicago. Uh, when he engages in fear mongering. Uh, so for me, it's and right now we have, a, you know, a, a Republican governor, you know, Bruce Rauner, who, you know, just vetoed, you know, we tried to pass, you know, new common sense gun legislation, uh, which had universal background checks tied into it. He vetoed that. Uh, so so much going on within Illinois. Uh, yes, another billionaire. Uh, so he'll be going against J.B. Prisker, the Democratic billionaire who essentially bought the election. Uh, you know, uh, Daniel Biss, the progressive candidate, came in second, uh, and Chris Kennedy came in third. Uh, but again, it's it's just, it's systemic. And the one message that I want to send people, I think it's, it's easy to be the lo a loud person in a room with other people that are yelling. Like, it's easy to point the finger at Trump, you know, and the GOP. And I understand, yes, there are issues, but realize the issues that we face are systemic. So they've existed for years, years, and years. Donald Trump is a byproduct. He's a symptom. And many of these symptoms and systemic issues that we face have been under Democratic leadership. So it's not just the GOP. It's not just Trump that we have to look at. As a Democratic Party, we also have to look ourselves in the mirror and see where our leadership has not led us in that progressive, in that right direction. Many of our Democratic leaders want to maintain status quo because it benefits them personally or it benefits the party but not the people. And it's inevitable when you maintain status quo, you're going to regress. You're not going to move forward. Things are going to get worse. And that's what we're seeing in Illinois right now. I mean, it's an utter devastation. And that's why for me, like, I have to run again. Like, this is not an option. It's a calling. Like, there's no other choice. Like, I have to. I have to for the people of this district. 
uh, you know, to truly put people before politics and profit. We need fighters out there, and, and that's what I am. You know, I want to. It's a good segue, actually, because um, when I do get back out there in the field, and for the audience, uh, if you know, if you know what I've been working on behind the scenes, I'm working on launching a new company. Uh, these podcasts are free, but if you want to listen to other podcasts uh, that are premium and other content, it's Patreon.com/slash Jordan Jared and Reports. That will get me back in the field, hire other reporters. After that plug, you know. You talk about Democratic leaders. I want to do a gentrification tour when I get back on the field. I mean, Chicago is like the head of the class of, of, of the effects of gentrification. I was in Chicago several times uh, during the 2016 campaign. And really what Democrat Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who was also credited with the Democrats, you know, triumphant retaking of the House in 2006. I mean, he has really beautified a, I don't know what, 10 block radius in Chicago, right. uh, the river walk, which I ain't going to lie. It's beautiful when you're there. It's, it's fantastic. If you have the money, uh, you can right. walk, you could have a beer or a good meal on the, on the water over the summer. It's right. very nice, but he has done this, uh, spending so much money on that, essentially mm -hmm. driving people who were already poor further out and right. leaving the rest of Chicago to rot. And we're starting to see this all over the country. Can you kind of talk about the, you know, the devastating effects of that gentrification? Yeah, no question. I mean, Chicago, like for any tourist that comes in, like <laughs> if you rent a Divi bike, you know, one of those rental bikes and you ride around, like it's no joke. Like you could quickly find yourself in the area and you'll be concerned because literally you could cross a street or cross a block or cross a bridge and everything changes. You know, our current mayor, you know, our current political establishment, they focused on, you know, the Navy Piers, the Magnificent Mile, you know, the shopping areas, you know, downtown Chicago, Gold Coast area. They put in a lot of money, a lot of TIFs, you know, where have been created and money's been funneled in, a lot of development. But all those communities surrounding, uh, you know, downtown Chicago, for the most part, are in utter devastation. And that's not, I'm not joking. Like I said earlier, I literally walked the entire district. I've saw it firsthand for myself, vacant homes, vacant lots, uh, trash everywhere, violence everywhere. And you have people truly fighting and asking for help and, you know, boots to the ground trying to make a difference, but they don't even have funding for many of these grassroots organizations that exist that are truly doing the work. Because I think, you know, we don't have to go through a history lesson, but I think we understand when white flight occurred. You know, Jim Crow laws existed, white flight occurred, redlining occurred, where, you know, whites left, you know, predominantly white individuals left the city and moved into the suburban areas. Uh, and then that pushed, you know, blacks and other minorities into the city. But now this is prime real estate. You know, now you have individuals, oh, I want to live, you know, by the river. You know, I want to live by Navy Pier, so on and so forth. So now it's reversing. You know, Illinois as a whole, we just shout out to 25th Ward IPO and Pilsen Alliance and uh, organizations that I work with. Right now, Illinois is a state that basically has a ban on rent control. Perfect example of that. So if you have a ban on rent control, that essentially means without rent control that, I mean, owners of property, so on and so forth, can raise rent as they see fit. That forces individuals out of communities because they become too expensive. So, again, with you know violence, not only lowering property to value. And then it gets bought up and individuals are forced out. The individuals that are currently in the communities, there's a ban on rent control. Thankfully, you know, that's been placed on a ballot to vote on. And hopefully I think we're going to get to the point where we vote to lift that ban on rent control. But that's, again, there's so many nuances. Rahm Emanuel, he's basically launched a war against our homeless population. You know, homelessness is a huge issue nationally, but particularly in Chicago, our homeless veterans, so on and so forth. And then it's not that narrative that exists where Oh, you know, we have a lot of homeless individuals, community members that actually work, that are actually engaged in their communities, but they struggle at times and they need support. But he's closed down tent cities due to developments. He's forced our homeless populations out of the city, basically pushing them, uh, you know, further west or out of the city. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a huge issue. These developments are going up. I mean, t rent and, and, and mortgages are astronomical. If you look at the Logan Square, I used to live in Logan Square in six years. Logan Square has completely different. Uh, the individuals that grew up in Logan Square, that new, new Logan Square, that are Logan Square, are no longer in the community because, again, property value lowered. It was purchased up. New developments go up, which increase property value, uh, force individuals out of the community. 
I mean, I'm going to end it here. It's so nuanced. Even the Obama presidential library that's being talked about being developed is creating a lot of rifts and issues because many people feel once that library is built, uh, you know, it's going to impact property value, property taxes going to rise. And then how is that going to negatively and adversely impact, you know, our middle class, lower middle class and poor individuals that are in the surrounding community and area uh, that the library is built in? Again, it's forcing people out and we're not doing enough, uh, you know, to support our middle class, you know, families, our lower middle class families and poor families. Gentrification is a huge issue. You know, I make a joke when you go into a community, and you see a Starbucks or a Divi bike, you know, those rental bikes start going up. It's, it's time. It's gentrifying. You know, people are being forced out. Add Whole Foods to that. Yeah, Whole Foods too, definitely. So, you know, I want to get to the gun issue because to me, I mean, of course, it's the easy conservative talking point. You actually hear it from some Democrats too. Well, you know, forget the mass shootings. What about Chicago? Well, it's, they never talk about why there is so much damn gun violence in Chicago. I mean, I'm not an African-American, so I'm not going to uh, act like I could... Uh, totally understand it. But the bottom line is, it's not like these people uh, killing each other are doing it because they just watched the Terminator. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I'd love to know your thoughts. But my view is, why don't we talk about there's no this terrible education there. Mm -hmm. They can't get jobs yeah. to put food yeah. on the table. They have to, you know, do things like sell drugs, things like that. Uh, yeah. You never hear that even in like, even when CNN talks about this. Um, can you can you kind of talk about um, you know the gun violence there? To me, it's not the gun. Obviously, it, it is a crisis, but mm -hmm. it's it's not directly related to you know Chicago. These people are bad, but like wh what what right. is driving them to that? Yeah, I mean, my one of my quotes, and I truly believe this is nothing stops a bullet like opportunity. Like I truly believe that in the gun crisis, gun violence, there's an interconnected issue. And what happens is, you know, particularly on the Democratic side, you know, again, it's easy to look at Republicans. Yes, we know the influence of the NRA, uh, so on and so forth. But on the Democratic side, what happens is the easiest answer is to just state that we need greater legislation. You know, we need more legislation. Yes, legislation is important. You know, pushing for common sense gun reform and common sense gun legislation is extremely important. But again, we need to create opportunity in our communities as well. They coincide with each other. We don't have our, our current political leadership. They're not stating that because, again, that means working hard. That means that it's no quick answer. It's no quick solution because these issues are systemic. We have multiple school closures within the Chicagoland area. Uh, we have, I mean, the 7th con Congressional District right now, even including the suburban areas like Oak Park, we're at a 16.5% unemployment rate. Uh, within the 7th Congressional District, you have about 83% of individuals that graduate high school. But only about, I say, 37% attend and graduate college. So that's a large percentage of individuals. Yes, college is not for everybody. College should not be the only answer or the only narrative to success. But we don't tie in vocational and trade programs within our high schools. Uh, we're not bringing in, you know, uh, job creation in regards to supporting small business opportunities, pushing for and supporting co-ops, so on and so forth, entrepreneurships. How can we bring businesses back? How can we bring job and opportunities back? How can we support our, our school systems before and after school programs? I mean, it, even the war on drugs. You know, I feel like the war on drugs is racist. I was the candidate who I'm 100% in support of the legalization of cannabis uh, because I believe right now it's a negative opportunity that exists that many of our youth are dying over drug territories. If we legalize, that would not only identify and allocate millions and millions of dollars to bring into our communities. And if allocated effectively, we could invest in our underserved communities. But it will also bring in medical benefits as well as social benefits, uh, because the small business that I co-own, again, many of them state <laughs> that we work with, their number one opportunity prior to working for us was selling drugs, selling cannabis. So it's the interconnected issues that exist. And we don't have the democratic leadership with that foresight, you know, that truly sees that it understands that that again, it's more than legislation. Because if you look at Illinois as a state, yes, we have extremely tough you know, gun, uh, gun legislation currently, but the states around us like Indiana, like Wisconsin, so on and so forth, do not. So 60% of our guns come from out of state. Uh, you know, it's an article written three years ago about trains coming into our train yards, lack of security being filled with weapons being broken into and these weapons being stolen. And my dad said that used to happen when he was a shorty, when he was a young person, 
uh, in the south on the south side of Chicago. So this is nothing new. So I think while we push for legislation, you know, I personally believe that we need to treat guns like we treat automobiles. You know, you need to get training, you need to be licensed, and you need to have insurance. Uh, you know, we need to, you know, of course, eliminate bump stocks, which where was our Democratic leadership after Vegas? Like for a week, everybody was saying we're going to close that loophole. But again, they counted on the fickle nature of the public. We didn't even have Democratic leadership saying, hey, don't forget about bump stocks. Let's close this loophole. Uh, universal background checks. We need to close these loopholes. A ban on, you know, assault weapons. I was a military veteran. I've carried an M4. I've carried AK-47s and AR-15s. They're not weapons that I believe any civilian should be carrying around or a hunter. So we need to push for that. But again, like you stated, we need to push for opportunity creation. How can we invest in our public school systems? We need to address how property taxes is inequitable, how it currently funds our public school systems. We need to stop privatizing our prison systems. We need to stop privatizing our educational systems. We need to end the war on drugs as a whole, legalize cannabis, uh, so on and so forth. You know, push for vocational and trade programs, push for small business creation, co-ops, so on and so forth. So again, it's everything interconnected that I think will lead to a decrease in gun violence because right now you have people that are hungry. Yes, there's accountability. You have to hold yourself accountable, but they're not eating. Okay, and at the end of the day, if somebody's not eating and they're trying to take care of themselves or their families and there's a lack of opportunity that's systemic, sometimes what do you think is going to happen? They're going to take from you. And I think that's why you see a lot of gun violence occurring. So I want to ask you uh, about two hours ago before we recorded this, uh, it came out that uh, it's like that old record spinning. Um, Alton Sterling, he was the Louisiana uh, African-American uh, murdered, uh, I believe, in two years ago, I believe. Um, yeah, 2016. Yep. Yeah, two police officers, uh, you know, came out that they're not going to be going to trial. Uh, we That in the aftermath of uh, Stefan Clark in Sacramento, just killed uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, and, I mean, I, I could go down a list of all, all, right. all of them. Um, uh, it, it's a weird qu- I don't know how to ask the question because I'm kind of lost as a white guy, uh, what to do. Uh, I'm just disgusted. Uh, as, as an African-American, especially in Chicago, um, mm-hmm. what, what's your response? It just seems like, obviously, this uh, this, go, this goes way back before Trump. It's not changing under Trump. What what, what can people, uh, is, there, is there hope in the next few years? Yeah. yeah, I mean, make no mistake. You know, for me, at the end of the day, you know, the systemic issues that we face, Like, I feel like the biggest ism of it all is capitalism, like, honestly. So you have all these oppressive isms underneath capitalism that are utilized to keep us divided. Racism, sexism, ableism, classism, you know, so on and so forth, for the most part, these oppressive isms, because it's about money, power, you know, it's about voting. So throughout history, blacks have been basically marginalized, basically looked at as subhuman to justify capitalism. Look at slavery, free labor. Oh, they're not human. You know, they, they don't, they, they're not as intelligent as us. Look at how their bodies are structured. They're built for enslavement. They're built for work. Again, throughout history, this is how we have been viewed. And make no mistake, what Trump has done has taken the covert and made it more overt. But many of these viewpoints that blacks are less than has not left our nation has not left society. Think about the teachers, the lawyers, the bankers, the politicians, the judges, the police officers throughout history who have held these viewpoints and covertly impacted society in this world. I mean, we just talked about redlining earlier. We could talk about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, how an entire black community, uh, self-sufficient black community was burned to the ground. So throughout history, we have been viewed as subhuman. Now, we're a human species, and I believe in equality. I I fight for all people, and I love all people. But we have to say Black Lives Matter for a reason, because we are, again, we aren't valued in society. How can, I mean, how, you know, I don't want to, actually, I do. I don't even care if I scare people when I say this. It was interesting. Yeah, two weeks ago, right, like, I was in class. We're on spring break right now. But I was talking to the class about the French Revolution. And one of my black students raised their hand and stated that, when is it going to be time for the next revolution? 
And think about how deep that is that in 2018, I mean, I believe that we really have to start thinking about and looking at a real live revolution. People have to look themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, what are they willing to risk and sacrifice? Because I'm tired. Like, I'm tired, and so many other people are tired. It's no longer enough to attend a march over the weekend, take a few pictures, pat yourself on the back, post it on Facebook, and, you know, you get a few likes and call yourself an activist. But then Monday through Friday, you go back and work within the same system that has led to the various forms of oppression that you're fighting against. Like, when is enough going to be enough? As a black man, when I walk out my damn door, I mean, Stephon Clark, he had a cell phone. I could be shot for a cell phone. I could be shot for having a hoodie on, Trayvon Martin. I mean, in my car, you know, Philando Castile, being in my vehicle. We are an endangered group of individuals, and we are not valued. Like, and, and the public has to see this. You can no longer tie yourself to a narrative, oh, he should have complied. Oh, why, did, or why didn't she just listen to the officer? When we're marching against gun violence, it has to include gun violence at the hands of police that black men and women are facing and black youth, because it's a huge issue. It's a systemic issue. Uh, so for me, it's the number one issue. I'm fighting for everybody. But I'm, as a black man, as a black male in society, I'm tired and I'm tired of being uh, being afraid. But then when I speak up or we speak up, it's a problem. It's an issue. People say, oh, you can't kneel or, you know, you can't say this or you can't do that. So we can't even express ourselves appropriately. Black Lives Matter trying to be identified as a terrorist organization. We can't even express ourselves in an appropriate manner because individuals want to say you have to protest when it's comfortable and convenient for us. So I feel like at this point, man, I'm calling to all people, you know, when it comes to black lives, when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to everything that we're fighting for, immigrant rights. Like, it, we seriously have to get to the point where our job isn't that important, where this little, you know, our, our savings, our, our life insurance policies, uh, you know, traveling, uh, you know, going to Disneyland means absolutely nothing until everybody is free. And that's how I'm built. Like, I, I'm on spring break. I'm out in these streets. Like, I'm going out to grind. I'm not taking vacation. Why am I taking vacation when another black man was murdered at the hands of the police department and we don't receive justice? When our children are being murdered at a, at a daily rate, when mass shootings are occurring, when there's people literally starving because they can't make a living wage. I mean, there's so much going on in this world. So for me, it's just like we got to wake up and we got to ask ourselves, when is enough enough? Like, when is our revolution? When are we going to be willing to risk the sacrifice at all uh, so that people can have life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness? I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's interconnected. I mean, I just saw I don't know if you saw this in Miami. They're talking about teachers can't afford <laughs> to pay rent or mortgages within areas that so they're going to build small housing on school grounds. I mean, like, what type of ish is that? We can't afford a living wage. So, you know, I mean, gun violence is, is interconnected, man. You know, we're not valued. And when we're out there trying to make a difference, when we're out there trying to do the right thing, we're gunned down. But then when some of us, who is not just black people, but when some of us are out there not doing the right thing, it's still us that are targeted incorrectly and gunned down. Uh, but somehow, you know, those biases don't exist with other individuals for the most part. And they can be peacefully arrested, peacefully apprehended or talked down. Uh, I mean, look, look at the drug epidemic. When, when crack hit, what was it? It was reactive, war on drugs, incarcerate, punish them. But now that it's an opioid crisis, which is a huge issue, I care about it, but the faces have changed. Now it's upper middle class white families now, all of a sudden, it's, oh, this is a public health crisis. We need to be proactive. We need to look at education and, and you know, rehabilitation and training. Again, what do, what do you think that says to black people and, and minority people as a whole? You know what I'm saying? The gun, you know, the March for Our Lives. I work with youth. And shout out to the youth I work with for March of Our Lives and the work that they're doing. Because they put in the effort to make it intersectional and empower those who are voiceless. Why did it take a mass shooting, which is horrible, but we're losing black and brown kids on a daily basis. Black and brown mothers are crying on a daily basis, but the news doesn't give a damn. So it's a huge issue, you know, so 
I hate to say it, I'm not surprised, but we internalize it, man. And, and when are we going to be valued to the point where people give a damn and care and we can seek justice and expect justice like our white brothers and sisters and anyone else in this world that deserves justice. So uh, it's a huge issue. Well, as I end, uh, I'm not going to say much to that because I think you said it beautifully, actually. Uh, I think it's also important that we understand there are obviously, uh, there's obviously political activism, but there's also a need uh, to create a new media system. You know, I think that um, obviously, full disclosure, I'm launching in the beginning stages of launching my own network. We got it out, business plan out to a few people. Um, but I, I think that although there's a great space for the Jimmy Doors of the world and, you know, regardless of what happened, the Young Turks and things like that, um, I, I think we need a media that's actually going to get out to those streets that you're talking about in Illinois and to, to focus on the things that are not sexy, like the gentrification or the lack of health care or what you just said right. in Miami, which I didn't even know about, that they're building houses attached to schools. I mean, we need media that actually shows it because I think the only way to really change things is, is it's a multi-pronged uh, thing. It's, it's political right. activism and new candidates but also waking more people the fuck up, uh, which right. is part of the role of media. So uh, I hope yeah. I hope through podcasts like this, I hope through in the field reporting again, uh, the you know the supporters that are supporting me, Patreon.com/slash/JordanChartonReports. That's not going so I could eat. That's going so I can get back in the field. Um, I think we need media that actually says, you know what, I'm not too, I'm not. Cons- this isn't about growing to five million Twitter followers or cl- climbing a ladder. Certainly not about making a lot of money because you're not going to do that right. as an independent journalist. But we need media that wants to show what you're talking about. No question. And that's why I thank, you know, uh, media like yourself, you know, because, again, you know, how many people are going to cover Stormy Daniels? Like, yeah, you know, great. It's newsworthy. But we're facing storms, like real storms in Chicago and other places. Like, it's easy to go to a third world country issue. But we have, like, third world situations in the United States of America. So we need media outlets like this uh, that don't just chase the huge story, you know, for clicks and for views that are truly, I mean, like Standard Rock, the work done in Standard Rock, like that work needs to be done because I feel like so many individuals in this country are well-meaning. Like they care about the progressive movement, but they're still in a bubble. Like they really, because they don't try, they don't go into certain areas. Like I know people that don't go east into Austin community or west into Maywood or south into Inglewood. So they don't they haven't seen for themselves. And I think it changes things and helps to build bridges and helps to identify the importance of intersectionality uh, when media exposes it for individuals and they can see for themselves uh, the type of shit that's going on in this world that needs to be changed. Man. So, you know, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And how can people uh, keep tabs on you before you uh, run again? Where can people find you? Yeah, definitely, man. I'm, I'm a friendly person. You can add me to Facebook, even though I don't know Facebook right now with this garbage that's going on. May have to may have to re uh, rethink having a profile, but Anthony Clark on Facebook, uh, my my nonprofit Suburban Unity Lines. We have a website. We're doing a lot of work in the community that will continue. Uh, so just check on us. You know, like I say, Anthony Clark. Uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. You know, we're doing this work. It doesn't stop. I just didn't do this for votes. Uh, we're doing this to change the world, man. So thank you peace. for joining me, man. Look forward to getting back with you when I when I'm in the uh, Chicago neighborhood. Thanks again. All right. Bye-bye.